Welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast, your home for stories, inspiration, and advice from athletes over 40. I'm your host, Robin Leggett. I'm a later-in-life athlete who became a roller derby skater in my 30s and a runner and obstacle racer in my 40s. Now, I'm an athletic aging coach who helps women over 40 experience the massive life benefits that come with exploring your athletic potential at any age and any fitness background. If that fires you up, keep listening. Let's do this. Loretta Claiborne is a Special Olympics athlete and a motivational speaker who shares her life story that carries a heartfelt message of acceptance and hope worldwide for people with different abilities. Loretta was born with physical and intellectual disabilities and did not walk or talk until she was four years old. Doctors told her mother that Loretta belonged in an institution because she would never survive in the quote unquote regular world. Despite her different abilities, which led to years of being bullied, teased, and hostile retaliation, Loretta credits the Special Olympics as her positive force that turned her life around. Loretta has found healing and freedom through running and has completed 26 marathons, her personal best being 303 in the 1982 Boston Marathon. She was awarded the S.B. Arthur Ashe Award and has shared her message with world leaders like Nelson Mandela, Pope Francis, United Nations leaders, multiple U.S. presidents, and Oprah Winfrey, to name a few. So yeah, your interests are likely peaked at this point and for good reason. Here is my conversation with Loretta Claiborne. Hi, Loretta. Are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? I sure am. I love it. Uh, You are Loretta Claiborne. You are the chief inspiration officer for the Special Olympics, and you've been a Special Olympics athlete since 1970. Am I right about that? You're correct. Well, the chief inspirational officer role, it was just like in the last four or five years. I got it. Got it. But you've been involved with the Special Olympics since 1970. I've been involved with the Special Olympics since 1970. And I was a person with intellectual disability to serve on the board of directors. Amazing. Awesome. Uh, I'm go- I want to get into that and how you know, how your journey has led you here. But first, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time? I happen to be 68 years old. Yay! <laughs> I happen to be 68. Do you feel 68? And I'm still kicking. You're still kicking. Do you feel 68? No, I don't. So it's, it's almost like you have to remind yourself, like, I'm 68? Really? Let's go back in time. Um, were you athletic as a kid? Do you play, did you play sports when you were growing up? Well, I grew up in the housing project and there was no sports for girls then. Yes. We heard of the Olympics and I remember seeing Wilma Rudolph run as a kid on TV, but there was no sports for kids. We played, we played baseball and softball and we had a park and we would go down to the park and play. So it was like but pick I, up, pick up sports, like. Yeah, yes. yeah, in the neighborhood. I was a champion in jacks <laughs> and in box hockey. Yeah, yeah. So all those like schoolyard stuff and neighborhood stuff, you just owned it. And I was good at dodgeball in school. Actually, I'll never forget playing. It this gender had just done the floors and I had socks on. We all had our socks on. We were playing this dodgeball 
And I was the last person in the circle. And I knew these two kids really wanted to get me. And I jumped over the ball and then I slid and my head hit the heating vent thing and like the radiator. And I had a seizure, but that was the only seizure I ever had in my life. Well, that's scary, but uh, I'm glad it was the only one. But that's that's an that's an intense dodgeball injury, I would say. It's probably the most intense in elementary school. In elementary life, that's hardcore. I don't remember my dodgeball being quite that hardcore, but I also- We shouldn't have been playing in our socks. That's pr- yeah, I'd say, yeah, we played outdoor on blacktop in shoes. Uh, yes. That's what I remember. But yeah, playing inside in socks, probably not the wisest decision. But you know, back then, I don't think safety was like the number one thing. No. Oh, <laughs> uh, How many times have, have I gotten kicked in martial arts in the head. Right, right. Take it off and then you you sit out about and then you get back up and he claws you back up and you spar. And I remember having the wheelhouse kicked kicked into the head. Yeah. Get back up. They were like, shake it off, get back up, get back in there. It's like today the kid would be pulled, taken to the hospital. I wish we knew then what we know now. (laughs) About concussions? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Getting back to the story, my brother started running he was in high school and of course he had his friends and my brother Hank was popular. Hank was the short name. His real name was Henry, but everyone calls him Hank the tank. <laughs> popular. And he was a state champion cross country and he was a state champion track and wrestling. So he'd bring the guys in the summer getting ready for the fall. He would bring these hurdles. They would go down to the smallest field. We used to call it the metal field. Bring these hurdles up and him and his friends would run around and go around the hurdles. Of course, me being a child who was slow and didn't have, you know, the ability to keep up. And of course, my sisters and them were playing dolls and they had their friends and da, 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 da. So I kind of like buddied around the house and I would see my brother and them out running. And I would just go over to where those guys were and run around the field following them. And my mother one day says, you don't need to be with those boys. But she knew where I was at. And she knew that Hank was kind of the leader. So she knew nothing would happen to me. And at the age of 12, I started running. And then I would run around the Parkway projects. And the rule was I could not leave the projects. So I would run all the payments. And I would come back down these streets and come back. And then I would make this one turn and somebody said to my mother, I saw Loretta on Pershing Avenue. And my mother looked at me and she started to get strapped. I said, but Pershing Avenue, the projects is on part of the projects is on Pershing Avenue. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. You were pushing your limits, but you knew, you knew what was like, what was within the I had that down pat. Yeah. (laughs) And then I was only 12 going on 13. And then I kept it up. And of course, back then, it wasn't the things for girl to run. That was a no-no. I mean, my mother even looked at me and says, I don't want you to grow up looking like a boy. I don't want you to have muscles. I don't want you. But you know what? I didn't have many friends. So I took solace in running. My brother. And I kind of wanted to be like him. So I kept running around the projects. And then I got older. We went to high school. There was no girls track team. I remember playing basketball half court. There was you, if you were a female, you could not play full court basketball. 
we had these skirt gym suits on. They were awful. And I remember playing half court basketball. So when I got into like 10th grade, there was a revolution going on in the country. The riots just start stopped and girls were getting more vocal. Women were getting more vocal about their rights. Blacks were getting more vocal. But being a child who was in total special education class, we weren't looked at, we weren't thought about. So these girls wanted to start a track team. And they knew that I ran because they would see me running. And they said, hey, let's get the girl from special ed. She's always running. We'll get her to get the principal to sign the paper and go around to the teachers at lunchtime. And they did. They tricked me. We had to raise money for the track team, which was a student activity. So they sold candy bars. And I sold more than anyone in the school. And then I was gypped out of that because they wanted a regular ed student to win, but the whole school this this person who won, who happened to be my friend, and he didn't sell one candy bar. His mother did. But getting back to the track, finally, I would go around get the teachers to sign, and finally, I had to take the paper to Mr. Eckenrode, and Mr. Eckenrode says, "Yeah, you girls can run." but you're only allowed to run in the halls after school. And you know, what's, what's interesting because we're talking about the sixties, right? Like we're talking about the late sixties, seventies. Talking about the late sixties and seventies. It's not that long ago. No, I graduated in 72. Yeah. It's not that long ago that girls were not allowed to run that your mom had all these misconceptions about what would happen to you if you ran. And, you know, I interviewed Catherine Switzer for this podcast and she's known as the first woman. I remember when she ran the Boston, she ran the Boston marathon. marathon. Yeah. And, and that, that was the story where it's like, I wasn't allowed to do this. They thought that my uterus was going to fall out if I ran. That's like, what my mom thought. Yeah. And it's like, when you think about it, was it that you're thinking it should be like the early 1900s or even farther back. It is the 1960s. It's not that long ago that I started that- running in 66. And then, you know, this is 69, 70. The next year they decided you girls can run in the hallway. And then the principal, the girls really went to bat and we all got together and we walked down to the small field, what we call the metal field. And the guys were running. And us girls were just standing there waiting for them to get finished. We didn't say anything to the principal. Then we all gathered around the track. I don't think we ever got to run, but I remember some kids picking on me. And my cousin, Pierre Ritter, said, you know what? I'm tired of y'all messing with her. We're going to have her run a mile against you. Well, here's these big black guys who could really run a 12-minute, 100-yard dash at the time. That was a good time back then, 11 minute, 12 minute, I mean, 12 seconds. I was going to say 100 yard dash. <laughs> 100 yard dash, because yeah. it wasn't meters then. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or 400 yard dash track. So my cousin got mad and he had me run a mile against these guys. First lap, I started looping them. Then my cousin said, mm hmm. I guess my cousin showed you, you know, I had never had no problem out of those guys. So then the girls in our 12th year, they had got, the teacher had gotten permission to take us to see a track meet up in New Cumberland. 
at New Cumberland High School. And I remember going to watch the meet. We had a bad storm that weekend and one of the coaches noticed us girls in the stand. There was no uniforms. There was no York High uniforms. We just had whatever we had on. I had on Tommy Can shoes. <laughs> wow, I have not heard that name in a long time. <laughs> yes. They were black and they had a white ball like across the top of the toe. And they were fast for me. And I remember comes over to Mrs. Kasiba, who was our coach. And she said, you know, I see your girls. And she says, well, they can't run because we're only here to watch. We don't have a program. Well, they wanted to fill the lanes up. So they asked us if we could run in the four by 100. So all of a sudden, all the girls says, well, we don't want no retards on this team. And Mrs. Kasiba turned around and looked at the girls and said, Loretta's going to participate. If it wasn't for Loretta, y'all wouldn't be here. It was Loretta that broke her back to sell candy bars, to get the principal, to get me to do this. Loretta is going to run. So I should have ran the anchor because I had the fastest time. <laughs> but those girls didn't want me to run the anchor. So they put me in first, which is usually a slower runner. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden I'm running. I had the baton. I passed the baton to the girl. She grabs it. She passes it to the next one. And at our third leg person dropped the baton. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So we graduated. In our yearbook, there's a picture of me and the girls. And I was just totally hating those girls. There was one or two girls I really liked on the team that treated me like I was a value. You know, I still have that picture to this day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was the start of my running. And then between that time, I never forget them. The counselor at the workshop says, hey, I see you running back and forth to the workshop. You can get the free bus pass. You know, the, the, our clients have free bus passes on the bus. Well, I didn't want to ride the bus because I was always getting in trouble. Somebody would make a smirk and then I would have an outburst. So I just decided. I can run to work. Nobody's going to smell me because I'm going to be stinky and smelly anyway. At the workshop, you know, you work with stuff for the war. And you always came home. They told you not to wear your best clothes. And the girls up front, they always would dress up and have their clothes on, but I always worked in the back. And there I was. And I come home, my shirt was just wash it. And it still, you could see the stains. So I just repeated the clothes because I don't want my clothes be nasty and they told us if you're working in production you're going to get dirty so then I got in a fight one day and Mr. Lee Gilreef who was our counselor came out and says Loretta I have something for you this evening well that morning he told me to go up and get a sandwich and I said no thank you and he looked at me he said Miss Claiborne he would always call me Miss and I hated that and I said could you please call me Loretta you can call everybody else by their first name so he says, Loretta, I want you to have a sandwich. I said, no, thank you. And I remember my mom says, don't ever take anything because nothing's free in this world. I want you to leave my house. I want you to go to that workshop. I want you to work on the odd week. Then you go to school. You don't take nothing from nobody in school. You don't take no, nothing from nobody at the workshop. Well, he was a counselor. So I took the sandwich. And I knew I couldn't eat pork and beef because I have a dietary problem. It, makes, I, I can't digest it. So 
I took this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We call them choke sandwiches. I ate it. And that night I got called into his office and everybody was like saying, yeah, she's out of here. I said, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm going I'm gonna to be out here and I'm going to school. I ain't going to even look back. But here he gave me a paper and he wanted me to join Special Olympics. And I looked at the paper. I picked it up and I looked at it and I could read the word Olympics. I said, Mr. Gail Reef here, you can, I can't take this. He says, I want you to have it. I want you to take this home and tell your mother. I will call her. So I folded the paper up, put it in my pocket. I got home. My mother was sitting there playing cards with some friends. I took the paper out of my pocket. I said, that's right, because I know he's going to call her. I handed her the paper, and she was sitting at the table. And she says, I don't have no money for this. I got two kids in drum corps. I got to buy boots, and I got to buy bucks for Allen, bucks or shoes that you march in. And the girls were like uh, horse boots. They were white. And the lady next to her said, Miss Claiborne Rita, won't you let Loretta in here? It's free. Loretta doesn't have nothing. You're the kids who are in this and then that. You have the kids in the drum corps. I know you're big in the drum corps. She says, won't you let Loretta have, have something? They're, they're going to take care of the workshop. Well, I thought she threw the paper away. That's Saturday. <laughs> you know, you choice work. Get your butt out of this house. Take another free sandwich with somebody. Uh-huh. Get your, your <laughs> now, now it's get the, the free sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, that's how he got me. I said, but it's raining out in this southern. I don't give up. You know what? You're going to get out of here. And when you come home, I'm, I want you to have them be- get ready to clean them bathrooms and get them clothes hung up. Your clothes is going to be waiting. Because we had five girls. And the boys seemed like they almost did nothing. Us girls on Saturday, we had chores. Yeah, yeah. Well, Again, the gender rules, right? The gender rules. I came home that day. Mr. Lee always gave me a ride home. She says, well, how was the Special Olympics? I said, it was okay. And she said, good. I said, I quit. She said, what did you say? I said, I quit. I said, I do karate and I'm doing that on Saturdays. I'd rather stick to karate. I'm quitting. She said, you don't quit nothing in my house. You understand? You're quitting. You'll always be quitting. The always quitting life. And she was right. <laughs> you know, it's it seems like you've had some some really important people show up at the right time and be in your corner. Um, and I noticed that you remember their names. Uh, you don't forget the names of the people who showed up for you. Um, nope. And I don't forget the Joy Johnson and all those yeah, girls' names. Yep, yep, yep. It's like your mom who once told you not to run because, <laughs> you know, who knows what yeah, was going to happen. Maybe she would say, okay, that's all right. You tried it. And one karate. And I thought if she's going to be upset about anything was that I joined karate. And I mean, if you're going to be boyish, karate would be the thing. And then many women didn't do martial arts. Cause I started it out as a, uh, mm-hmm. as a, a, like a class for self-defense for women. And mm-hmm. I never forget it. I was doing, then they called it slim nastics. Then they changed from slim nastics to aerobics. Remember the rope? Slim and I'm, I'm still stuck at slim nastics. Like I didn't know they called, they called it that. And oh. it, they, some of the oh. exercises were awful. <laughs> the pelvic name. thing. 
we all down the gym, make sure no men are looking mm-hmm. in the in the window. And right. It's like, yeah, nobody knew what to do with women for the longest time. And then, of course, I remember aerobics. I grew up in the 80s, so I remember aerobics. So uh, you did the Special Olympics. I take it you ran in the Special Olympics? What did you do specifically? It was funny because I would run around the projects just like nobody's business. Our projects are still there. And it's a couple miles around that project. So, you know, it's on at least if you run the right roads or the out of that project, you get well over a mile, almost two miles. And I would just run the projects every evening. And then, you know, I'd take a break because then I knew I had karate one night. You know, I had karate Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Or I'd just run around one loop. But um, it was amazing that then women were told, this is not what you do. When I started karate, I remember going to a tournament. My sensei took us to a tournament. I was the only girl. And we went to this tournament. It was huge. And there was no place for the girls to get dressed. It was all for the males. So I got slick. When I would go, I would take a shirt and have a T-shirt, a white T-shirt under my shirt. And then I would take my shirt and slip the long sleeve. And then had the shorter sleeve one and then put on my gi. And I always made the shorter shirt was big. So it went over my little undies. And then slip on my gi pants first and then do that. And then tie my obi, which is your belt. And then I would compete. You know, girls and girls and women, I think it's universal. We've all become very good at clandestine clothes changing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like I'm in public, I have nowhere to go. I'm going to and there was, somehow completely you know, change out of one thing. Girls into were like yeah. second fiddle. Like people look around, those guys that look around the room. What are you doing here? You know? And still today, if you even look back then when there was no nothing offered for girls, here we're watching the NBA, the basketball, and the WNBA, and here the, the athletes, it might have been the Olympics. It was one of those big competitions. It was just happened this late. Oh, March Madness, where they had the gym, the gyms. Yes. It was March Madness. Yes. And the March men Madness. had this like really nice gym set up and the women. And the had- girls had a couple of little weights. Yep. 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 Okay. And that's 2021. Yep. It's still happening. What is, what's wrong with this picture? Right. It's still, it's still a problem. It's still happening. We have. We have wage inequality in sports, like the women's soccer teams and the WNBA versus the NBA. There again, they're the, mm-hmm. the women's soccer team. And mm-hmm. guess what? What's really sad about that is the women are paying better, playing better than the they're men. They're playing better. Yeah. Yeah. And so we still have so much work to do and it's really frustrating. It's angering, yes. you know? Well, I get mad at Special Olympics because they focus more on the youth. Mm-hmm. And I remember speaking at Special Olympics because we have what they call the young athletes, which used to be called Let's Play and Grow back in the 80s. And they revised the program, went dormant for a while. Now they have young athletes and that's children two and a half to seven. It's supposed to instill them into play and coordination and get to play with regular kids. No competition. Then we have the traditional at eight and beyond. Well, all the focus is on the young athletes and the younger athletes. And my biggest pet peeve at Special Olympics is to look, 
you have athletes who are older. Mm-hmm. But when you do a marketing campaign, you talk about our athletes. Our athletes who are older, you should provide programs and give them the same structure as you give the younger athlete. Our athletes are athletes, period. Right. 69 or nine, you're mm-hmm. an athlete. Well, and that's important. I, I feel like you've spent your life as an advocate, whether you've known it or not. You've always had to fight for your position, for yourself, for your teammates. Uh, and now, uh, it's, yeah. And so it's, it's brutal. And so it's, it's like ingrained in you and instilled in you. And so now you're rep- now it's time to, you know, it's like, we still have sexism. It's very clear that that's still a problem, but ageism is also a problem. And that's, I mean, that's it's why a I, huge problem. Yeah. And people don't, you know, the same issues or similar issues that people had around women doing, you know, running or doing strength training or aggressive sports. That's, you know, there's a little bit of that, not as much as, or not as like obvious as it was in the sixties and seventies, but right. that is now transferred to older people, to older women mm-hmm. specifically that, you know, once you reach a certain age, certain things are not accessible for you anymore, or you shouldn't do them, or you're, it's going to be dangerous. You're going to hurt yourself, all of which is not true. You're going to have high blood pressure. You're going to have heart attacks. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to break a bone. You're going to, you know, whereas in reality, doing these types of activities actually strengthens your body, actually builds muscle mass in a time when it would otherwise decline, you know, that, that actually staves off these illnesses. And I know that's true. Cause I, once in a while I'll hit something in the payment and I'll trip. I never break nothing. I still figure skate and I fell on the ice. And it's funny. People laugh. This is, I never see nobody fall like you. <laughs> well, you're like, I've been doing this whole my whole life. <laughs> and well, I took judo. Yeah. Yeah. I took. So, and I knew how to fall, but yeah, you still didn't take a fall. My age. I have friends who who just trip and they broke bones. Yeah, they'll break a hip. Yeah. Break bones. I said, no. Now in my hand, if you look at my hands, I've broken a lot of bones in this one hand, but that's martial arts. Right, right. All the years of breaking boards and bricks and punching people. But other than that, I you know, I never broke no major bones. Yeah. I've been lucky too. <laughs> I'm fortunate. Uh, but yeah. You can see these things right <laughs> here. I think that's just from I've been knitting a lot and I've been knitting preemie hats and the knitted papers. <laughs> you have so many talents. <laughs> so and I make them give to hospitals and oh, cancer that's so centers. Great. That's so wonderful. But I've been knitting so much over the pandemic because at night you want to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you want to do something. So yeah. Now I want to do something. Mm-hmm. So let's, I want to transition into the marathons because after, after your special Olympics experience, you started getting into marathon running because it's, this is now a thing you can do. Uh, whereas when you were younger, it was like, as we discussed, it was not a thing you could do. Um, well, I ran not long after Rosie Wu Wes, remember mm-hmm. her? I'm not, I'm not familiar, but. Uh, she was the one that got on a bus or something and she ended up running the end of the marathon and she got caught. Oh yeah. Okay. I think I've heard her story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what led you to run your first marathon and what was that experience like? My friend, Bob Hollis, his wife and I are still best, best, best friends. Um, they used to have these 
little track meets in the summer here through the uh, organization called the Crispus Addicts, the community center. So he used to put on these track meets and they would have, you know, from the very small distances on up to the, the mile, two mile, the three mile. And I remember one year seeing Kim Gallagher. She was just a kid come there and she ended up in the Olympics, but then she died back in the late nineties of cancer. But he would have these track meets. And then one time we were, I was over at Becky's house and it was in the fall. And Bob says, hey, Loretta, you think we should, could train for a marathon? And I looked at him. I said, you know how far a marathon is? It's 200, I said, it's 26 miles, 285 yards, and six and a half inches to be exact. That's pretty exact. I said, uh, I don't know if I really want to run a marathon. So me and Bob got our heads together. And I remember his wife had, was having kids. And she was pregnant. And here's me and Bob. And I said, okay, Bob, I'm going to try this. So me and Bob, it was the Harrisburg Marathon. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania was our first one. And we go and we go up a couple of weeks earlier and try to see where the course was. We were just guessing in our head. I don't think they'll be running in town. So maybe they'll run around the Capitol. And then we start running down by where these railroad tracks was. Then we heard somebody shooting. And I looked at Bob. I said, man, I'm getting the hell out of here. Yeah, I'm going to run faster now. And it was in November. So people were starting to shoot the first week of November. So finally, they, the race came up. And then me and Bob ran it. My first race, I ran in three hours and 35 minutes. I saw Bob coming down the Longstown Road. He said, man, I quit. I quit. I said, come on, Bob, we can finish this. Then I ran into, uh, oh, I can see his name now. His dad owned the Bonton stores. And here he is. He's just trucking, trucking. I said, come on, man, we're going to finish it. He says, man, I can't do it. I said, my man, Bob's back there. Come on, you can finish this. You can finish. Tim Grumbacher. So all of a sudden, Tim Grumbacher, who's the son of Sam Grumbacher, who owned Bonton Stores, which started in Europe, we start running. I said, come on, man. Now, let's walk fast. Walk fast. Run. Let's walk fast. So me and Tim finishes. I finished first in three hours and 35 minutes. A couple of weeks later after that, I'm knocking on Bob's door. I say, hey, Bob, there's a marathon. He says, where at? She said, I can't do it. My, you know, my wife is about to have a baby. Said, Come on, man. It's in Baltimore. It's not that far. <laughs> also, You're a bad Becky influence. <laughs> and Bob is not running no marathon. So she looks at me and says, where's your coat? I said, I got my running stuff on. So she gives me his, his nylon jacket. They wore a lot of polyester nylon back then. So she gave me the jacket and I went to Baltimore and I ran that marathon. And that I mean, this was, was this just like, like you showed up at his door, like, like you showed up at his door and it's like, there's a marathon right now. Or was, was this was back in, uh, I ran the first one in Harrisburg mm -hmm. next, that was in November. And that next month, there was one in the beginning of December down in Baltimore. Okay. And you, you made it sound like she gave you a jacket and you just went right to the marathon. <laughs> That's she what gave it was like. Me a jacket. Yeah. And I had my, um, have my entry fee because then you could just enter right there. You paid a little you more cash up. And 
up front. Got the marathon and I ran that then I got the marathon bug. And so, uh, yeah. So yeah, you got the twenty six marathons. Um, in what span of time did you run twenty six marathons? Well, one year I ran five marathons. I ran Harrisburg, then I ran Baltimore, then we went over to Eastern Pennsylvania. I ran a race, and I never forget my friend Ben Heiser. He wins in his age group. They gave him a belt buckle and a belt. Oh, I can't wait to hear what. I win the women's <laughs> race uh-huh. overall, and I got the belt buckle and no belt. Not cool. <laughs> so then I end up running the George Washington Marathon, and I end up running another one, and then I finished up with running Boston. Five and one year finished with with the pinnacle Boston yeah, Marathon. From uh, you know from November to April. Was this 1982? Was this? That was that was in 81, 82. Because I, I have here that you your personal best happened in Boston. Yes. Yeah. And you got a 30303. Yeah. Well, you know, then it was weird because it's not like now you have a chip. You put a chip on your shoe. If you're seven minutes back, that chip doesn't go off until you hit the starting line. Right, right. Well, back then, I had my watch and I had it set. And I was almost eight minutes till I got to the starting line. Then they only had 6,000 runners. There was a cap and you qualified. There was no special provisions. Like now you see these athletes from Special Olympics, they can run Boston in six hours and stuff like that. I qualified with the same time as any normal athlete qualified. Self-taught, no special shoes. So I get there. I'm looking at my rate, my watch. And I was like, it's almost eight minutes to the starting line. So we run. So the first year I ran in three hours and seven minutes. The second year, when they sent you a little card, it was just like a business, just a little bit bigger than a business card. They sent you this card and it had your regular time on and your estimated time. Yeah. So so results are a little bit loosey-goosey with, back then yeah well it took me eight minutes to get this line and i ended up running like a i don't know 307 again and uh they gave me a three minute allowance that's like it took me five minutes right yeah it was like way more than three minutes minutes. get the starting line so we get home we didn't know our time and that was the same year that greta veitz ran and she got sick she ate some chocolate (laughs) and she was destined to win the race then she was from norway and she was number one in the world and it was near easter and she got some chocolate and it made her sick because at the end of the race she she came up to congratulate me and i'll never forget her walking up to me and says loretta i said how did you do because somebody knew somebody wanted me to meet her and I was a Special Olympics athlete, the first ever to do a marathon. Self-trained, no special nothing, no special provisions. And she, I said, how did you do? She says, you beat me. I said, no, you won the race. She says, no, I got sick. She ate some candy and it made her sick. Hmm. She died a couple of years ago. Hmm. But she was the number one marathoner at that time. Yeah. 
and and you happened to beat her that year because and she had some bad candy come up and yeah that we were in this room to congratulate me and everything i thought that this this notable awesome. runner came to recognize you like yep. look at how far you had come you know and yep. again you were self-taught you know, you didn't have a fancy coach or anything like that. Didn't have no coaches. Now look yeah. at these athletes. Um, they're running these marathons in six and seven hours. God be with them because I don't think I could be out there that long. It's yeah, I've done one. I and admire it, them, yeah. but they get all this prestige and they, you know, they aren't doing it in the times that I done it. Right. <laughs> yeah. With no coaching. Yeah. Right. It's me and, and Hollis, and then Hollis quit. <laughs> but it just shows the drive that you had, you know, the drive that you had from an early age and the push that you had from the right people at the right time. Well, just like the karate teacher saying, this is not for women. You women need to be home taking yeah. care of that. Not, you were not ready to accept that. <laughs> for like 28 years, 1971 to 1999, I'd moved out of the area and I couldn't get back into town. And, you don't want to be walking at night outside. But I stuck with it all those years in the same way with running. Today, I still run. I don't run near as fast as I let's, used to. Let's talk about what you do now, because I think that's probably, you know, your story is is a big inspiration and a lot of lessons from that around fighting for what you believe in, um, you know, having having the drive to solve problems yourself when other people aren't going to solve them for you, uh, making your own, making your own way and making, creating your own opportunities. Like that's what you had to do, uh, as you came up and, and as a result, you have this like amazing resume, uh, starting with the special Olympics with 26, uh, marathons. I, you know, I have your bio in front of me. You were awarded the SB Arthur Ashe award for courage. When, when yes. did that happen? That happened in 1996. Amazing. And I donated the, the award to a center, that Crispus Attic Center, because there's a lot of young women. They had built a building and named it after me, the Loretta Claiborne uh, Community Health Center. And I know there's a lot of women that have had children. It's in a really underserved area. And my, my thing was to donate it to them for their use. They don't keep it because I'm hoping that one day Special Olympics will have their own museum and then I'll donate it to them, give it to them. But it sits in this center. And my thing is, if a woman from this area has a kid to have faith in their kid, that their little kid will look up and see that and say, if she can do it, I can do it too. Yes. And so you're paying it forward to the next generation in, in an area that needs it, that's underserved, as you said, that may not have the opportunities that many people do, just like you. Yeah, we came from the projects and we didn't have a lot, but what we had, we had a mother who was strong and she believed in the morals and she believed in the value of her children, but she also believed that you know what? I want my kids to have what I don't have. I might won't be able to give them money. I might won't be able to give them a big house. They might won't have a car, but I want my kids to have more than I have. And that's what I think today with Special Olympics. I serve on the board of directors. I serve on, uh, wear many hats. I speak in schools, but I, right now with the COVID going on, I do it mostly on the computer. Like right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
But that allows you to reach even more people probably because you can get outside of your local community. Yes. I don't travel by bus or anything because of COVID when this stuff gets over. I mean, there are masks all over this house. Yeah. Yeah. You're well-versed. You're well-versed. And and you you go out the door, the mask goes out the door. Yes. Yes. And that's smart. uh, I go to the YMCA Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I start out with a spin class, 45 minutes to an hour. Then after that, we got like five-minute break in between class because the next class comes in, and I start setting up the chairs for the silver sneakers. And then those are ladies and gentlemen who are older, but it's not the typical silver sneakers class. You're doing 22 minutes of solid aerobic exercise, standing up. And I remember we had one guy come in and says, what's the point in having the chairs? You don't use them. <laughs> you know, you get chairs the whole rest of your day. You yeah, you have to chair the whole, that chair is there for you to balance. And like when they do certain exercises, like the lifting weights and stuff, that type of stuff over the head, um, you can actually get a sweat in this class. So I do that on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then, of course, I was running right before I got on this call. <laughs> like literally you, you shut up. And you're like, I got my running clothes on. Like, I feel like that's the story of your life. You show up places. with. Your I get up. This on. is how I dress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can always ready to run. I'm getting rid of suits right now. Taking them to the community aid. You don't wear them. You wear your running clothes, right? I wear my running clothes. And when I start speaking again, I notice I watch people on TV and I watch these uh, shows like Tamron Hall or whatever the morning show. I watch what women are wearing, and nobody's wearing full suits anymore. And I figure keep a couple of those because I know in my situation I might get called to the UN or I might get called to the White House. Then that's when you wear a, a suit. Yeah. Suit By the hat. way, let's not just let that slide. <laughs> I might get called to the UN. I might get called to the White House. You. Speak- I never know because I'm always out there advocating for better health intellectual disability right now with this COVID situation. A lot of our athletes don't have the accessibility to the health. Yeah. And so you're, you're speaking to these notable audiences, world leaders, presidents, yes. uh, the United Nations. Uh, you've spoken for Nelson Mandela, uh, the Pope. <laughs> um, the, like this, you're not just speaking to your local community. You're actually speaking to influencers and world leaders, which I think is absolutely worth noting. Uh, again, and it's not about me. It's about, it's about the know, message. At, around this world where there's hardly anything. And we just, it's going back to the woman thing. Mm-hmm. People, they think people with intellectual disability shouldn't be paid as, as much. There are still people, I have friends who are still working in shelter workshops and getting paid $20 every two weeks. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what my whole fight is. I just spoke to Hershey uh, candies, the people who make the Hershey candy bars and the kisses. Mm-hmm. I just spoke to their company. Yeah. And so, yeah, you just they keep want to reach out. I, it's amazing. Again, you've been advocating since you were young. I feel you're just a lifelong advocate. You've been advocating for people with um, intellectual disabilities, for women, uh, for people who are older now. Um, and standing up for people who may not be able to stand up for themselves. And, and you're changing the world. Somewhere along the line, somebody did the same thing for me. Yeah. It was a kid. 
I never forget it. My mom had seven of us living. There was really nine who didn't make it. And my mother didn't have a lot. And one night, it was near Christmas. She says, oh, I wish I could just have Christmas for my kids. And back in the 60s, you know, you lived in the project. A knock came on the door. And it was a man there. And they were from some church. He says, I was chosen in church to be your secret Santa. And my mother looked at this man. And, you know, being black and the way she was raised, blacks wasn't treated well. She went to an all black school. She didn't have it. Put it this way. It was she didn't have a pretty life growing up because of the color of her skin. So the man came in and talked to her. And not only did he become her secret Santa, just like the church had it just for that year, every year, Mr. Dykus would come and each of us kids, when it was our birthday, he worked at Yorktown Ice Cream. He would bring a big thing of ice cream to our house and it would be in hot ice and he would do little tricks with the hot ice so us kids could see. But he wanted to be more than just that one night thing for just for Christmas. Every one of us, when our birthdays came up, he had ice cream, he had cake, and he would have maybe a $5 bill because that was big in the 60s. So this man didn't have that. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have stuff. But here was this man that could have said, okay, I did my little secret Santa, I'm done. But he continued it. And in 1972, when I made it to go to the games, him and another different family took us under their wings. And both of those families, I'll never forget it. They just you know, did for us all. When I graduated from high school, Mrs. Strine bought me a suitcase because she found out that I was going to go on to the uh, international games. And it wasn't world games. It was the national games, national special Olympics games. Not huge like it is now. World, you know, international, went from National Special Olympics Games to International Special Olympics Games and now to World Games with 190-some countries. I went out to uh, UCLA and she bought me a suitcase so I could have a bag, a nice bag when I went on to the games. So, yeah, you, you've never but forgotten. People like that, yeah. that I've never forgotten. The people who showed up for you at, at the right times to help you elevate your life. And now that's, that's how you're paying it back or paying it forward is to continue because people still need that kind of help. And I think about a man by the name of Bob Marley. I don't know if you ever heard of him. I've heard of him. Yes. He sings a song called Pass It On. And in that song, the course is live for yourself. You'll live in vain. If you live for others, you'll live again. In the kingdom of Jah, which just means God, in the kingdom of God, you shall reign. So pass it on. And that's what I do now. That's what you do. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it seems like you've just, you, you've chosen to live a life of service. And um, I just give back. Yeah, you keep giving back, which is amazing. So uh, as we get ready to wrap up, um, if people want to know more about your story or how to, how to learn more about you, because you just, it's, we've, we've touched on a number of things, but there's, I feel like there's more, I feel like we could talk for a long time and there's so much more. Uh, how could people learn more about you? 
They can probably go on the website to LorettaClaiborne.com or through specialolympics.org. Yeah. And if, and if better to go on the website. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, that's a, that's a cause that's very important to you as someone who's been involved with the special Olympics since 1970. Uh, you know, if that's, if, if you're looking for something to support, that's a great way to continue to pay it forward that anybody can do. Um, so, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, as we finish, I asked this question to all my guests and I'm very curious about your answer. It kind of puts people on the spot, but I feel like you, you might be ready for this. So I would love to know if you have one parting piece of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners today, what would that be? One parting piece of wisdom I have for everyone is to keep your faith, even when times are hard and to keep moving. And don't let nobody tell you just because you're a seasoned athlete that you can't do this and you can't do that. Just remember, the more you move, the better off you'll be. Amen to that. Um, And and that's very reflective of your whole life story. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. And always keep moving because it's going to make your life better at any age. And And the age is just a way of thinking. Age is just a way of thinking. As we kind of going back to the beginning of the interview. Yeah, you're 68, but you don't feel it. So, you know, I feel like your 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 life has led you to a place of feeling ageless. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. But you know, you're you're up. You're moving all the time. You may not be running marathons as much anymore, but you still love running. No, I don't do the marathons yeah. anymore. But I have plenty to do. Like Tuesday night, I go to refit with my friend Miss Becky, who's who was pregnant, and I knocked on the door. No, oh, oh, this is the- a, this is the same friend. Yes. We're still friends. That's so great. I love that. Yes. And I just actually, it, I was over her house last night. That's so. Your re, it's like you know your stories that you've told. Your recall for names is so impressive to me because I don't have that. Uh, but you just you remember every single person who touched your life in different ways uh, throughout throughout your entire life. All, all you know, sixty eight years of life, and it's it's just so impressive to me. But it just shows what an effect everybody has had on you, and and how that is made you into the person you are today out there making a difference in a lot of different ways uh, for a lot of different people, young, older, uh, different races, women, all of that. So thank you. It's for, all about the human being. It's all about the human being. So thank you for doing the work that you do. And Loretta, thank you thank for you. taking the time and coming on to share your story on the Season Athlete Podcast. Yes. And to just remember, Age is just a way of thinking. It's not a number. That's right. Seasoned athletes, if you've fallen out of your fitness routine and the idea of jumping back in feels as daunting as putting together a work presentation the night before you have to present it, I have a fun freebie for you. Introducing the Off the Couch Starter Pack. Inside this free download, you'll find six days of strategically programmed workouts and recovery sessions for any fitness level, all designed to get you up, get you moving, and get you excited about working out again. I paired every workout and recovery session with its own hand-curated Spotify playlist to ensure that you're moving with joy every step of the way. Because that, my friend, is how you get fired up to get back into fitness again. So, if you're looking for a way to open that door that's been closed for far too long and to do it in a way that's simple, effective, and fun, download my free off-the-couch starter pack now through the link in the show notes or at robinleggett.com slash buycouch.